So we're going to be in about three texts of Scripture this morning, just giving you fair warning. Genesis chapter 14 as we begin. Genesis chapter 14. Kids, I'm glad to have you in here this morning. I am glad to have you in here this morning. We're going to talk about a guy named Melchizedek. And I'm sure you're going to be really glad you're in here by the time we're done this morning. Nah, it's going to be great. It's going to be great. We're going to talk about a guy named Melchizedek. Genesis chapter 14, last Sunday, as we were taking ourselves through, the, as we we're going through the book of Genesis, we, we came across and encountered in chapter 14, Abram, who goes and rescues his nephew Lot. And we met a guy who, this is the only historical mention, historical mention of him in the scriptures, a guy named Melchizedek. And he's really an interesting guy, but he's not the only mention of him in the scriptures. It's the only historical mention of him. And he's quite an important figure, even though we only see him one time. You, if you've been here long, maybe if you haven't been here too long, you'll know this. I'm not real big on types in the scripture. I'm just not. I'm not real big on typology. But when, when we come across someone who, who is a clear picture of someone else, we better point that out. And what we have here this morning as we talk about Melchizedek is we have a clear type of who Jesus Christ is. We have a clear picture of Jesus. And, and not only is he a picture of Jesus, he, in a way, his ministry and his life Help us to understand how Jesus is, if you will, the perfect Melchizedek. He is, he is the complete Melchizedek. So as I mentioned, Genesis chapter 14 deals with uh, a, a, the first recorded battle, the first recorded war in history. It's right there in the scriptures for us. And we have a guy named Big C. I called him Big C last week. Kador Laomer. Kador Laomer. Hey, boys in the room, aren't you glad your dad didn't name you Kador Laomer? That's like the worst name ever. This guy, though, was a pretty powerful king. And he led three other kings, and they, they were kind of ruthless. They, they kept their part of the world under their thumb, and this is the way they did it. They required the other people under them. They required the, the smaller kings, the people who weren't as powerful. They required them to pay them money every year is what they did. They collected tribute from these guys. And there were five kings who were kings over little cities. And those five kings decide we've had enough of paying these big powerful kings taxes. So what the four kings did is, is they pretty much advanced a, a war plan and they came right down and they wiped out all of the friends of these five kings and they surrounded these five kings and they took these five kings captive and they took all the people and all their possessions with them. Well, it just so happened that one of the families that got taken there was the family of Lot, who is Abraham or Abram's nephew. And when Abram found out about that, he pursued after them, and with some help from his friends, they managed to rescue these people who had been taken captive. And so this morning, I want us to just review a couple things in Genesis chapter 14. I want you to see what Abram does. In this passage, and I don't know if I pointed this out last week when we went through the whole chapter, 
But in this passage, you have all these kings, right? You have four kings who take on five kings. The four kings defeat the five kings. And then Abram goes and he pretty much routes the four kings. And he brings back the people who have been taken captive. So you have nine kings in this, right? And at the end, you have two kings who are interacting with Abram. You have the king of Salem, whose name is Melchizedek. He wasn't involved in any of this. He's not even one of the nine kings. So he makes the tenth king in this passage, right? So you have ten kings, and then you have, you have one of the other five. You have the king of, um, of um, Sodom, and you have Abram doing business or doing transactions with these two kings. What's interesting to note is Abram only bows before one king in all of this. And who's the king that he bows before? It's Melchizedek. It's Melchizedek who wasn't even involved in this conflict. And so as we consider that this morning and as we look here, in Genesis chapter 14, we're going to pick up in verse 17. I just want to read these, these eight verses to kind of give us some context. After he returned from the re- defeat of Cator Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. That would be what I pointed out last week. It would be the valley between Jerusalem today and the Mount of Olives, okay? It would be that valley was the valley of kings. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. And he blessed him and he said, Blessed be Abram the God most high, by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. This guy wasn't involved though, right? He wasn't involved in any of this. He had no stake in this. And, and, and I want you to just, if you mark in your Bible, mark that. Abram gave him a tenth. This is important. This is an important detail. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young man have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. Those were his three friends. And he's saying, they can get the spoils of war, but I'm not taking one thing for myself. Okay? How many of you deal with real problems in your life? Only a few of you do? How many of you deal with real problems? Like, how many of you have cars that break down, houses that fall apart? Any of you have that? How many of you have to pay, um, you know, lots of money to repair things, or you're dealing with physical issues, you're dealing with health issues? Any of you dealing with health issues? All you're doing perfectly fine, you're all physically great, right? Right? How many of you deal with relationship issues? Everybody's checking with their wife right now. Are we dealing with a relationship issue? How many of you have kids who give you heartache all the time? (laughs) We all are dealing with problems, are we not? We're all dealing with problems. Have you ever tried to call when you've had a problem, like with an appliance or something, call the helpline? How many of you have ever gone through that horror of calling the helpline? Have any of you ever found the helpline to be helpful? In fact, it's kind of a joke, isn't it? Like, whenever, whenever I get new stuff... 
and, and you get all the paperwork with it, and you get the little booklet that says, here's the helpline, that immediately goes in the trash, right? Yeah, we're not going to be using that, right? I would rather go and just watch endless hours of YouTube videos and try to figure it out before I call the helpline. And so we've kind of, as Americans, we've adopted this thing that, well, we can just take care of it ourselves, right? I can handle it myself. It's, it's after all, it's the American way. No, I'm just going to complain to you about how hard it was, but I'm going to take care of it myself, right? And we've adopted that kind of mentality. And in doing so, what we have done is we have really cut ourselves off from the greatest resource that we have. We have a great high priest. We just sang about him. We have a great high priest. And life is really hard. Life is really, really hard. And the reason that we need to know about Melchizedek is because Jesus was a priest in the order of Melchizedek, and there is no high priest like King Jesus. And we're going to see that in the Word this morning. Life is full of problems, and we have real needs. We have significant needs. Yeah, I know you came here dressed real pretty this morning to go to church. You, you picked out your favorite shirt. You put on your favorite pair of pants or whatever. Women, you might have even put on a little makeup like it's the only day of the week you ever touch your makeup bag, right? And because we're trying to camouflage that none of us have any needs, I'm not that dumb. I know every one of you's got real needs because I got them too. I got them too. And life doesn't just expose our needs, it, it, it also exposes where we fall really short too, doesn't it? Life has a way of not exposing just our needs, but exposing where we're really short and where we can't make up the gap. And then you bring along the Word of God, which one of the jobs of the Word of God is, is to be a mirror to our hearts, right? I don't know about you, but there's some times when I hold the mirror of God's Word up to my heart and I hate what I see. Anybody else there? I don't like it at all. And when that happens, I'm tempted to just say, okay, let's just put you over on the shelf because you're a really bad mirror and I'll find something else that tells me that I'm really looking pretty good. And that's the lie of the world. The world wants to tell you you're looking pretty good, right? The world wants to tell you you got nothing wrong with your heart. The world wants to tell you, oh, you're just like the rest of us. You're just a screwed up mess. Yeah, we're all a screwed up mess, but here's the thing. God's Word doesn't just show us how screwed up we are. It actually tells us how to get it right. And we have a great high priest, and the remedy is Christ. And this morning, I hope by the time we leave here that we will all recognize what a phenomenal thing it is to have not only the great King Jesus, but the, gate, the great King Priest Jesus. So would you pray with me this morning as we open God's Word and we consider for the next few moments this guy Melchizedek. Father, we are needy. There's not a one of us in this room that can say, man, I have it all together. I have everything in place where it should be. My life is just clicking along at 100 miles an hour like a, like a, like a finely tuned engine. We all need tune-ups. We, we all need to have the, the cars of our life totally re reworked over. 
But Lord, I pray this morning that before we leave here, that we would encounter the one, the one who is king of kings and, and who is our eternal priest, Jesus. And that we wouldn't just encounter him in a, in a surface, shallow way, but that we would encounter him and meet with him deeply, that we would have our eyes open to see Jesus for who he really is, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, this is a question just for kids, not big kids who act like little kids, just for kids. Kids, you paying attention here? Look up this way. If I were to ask you, you see, this is a test of Mrs. Scarberry to see how well she teaches you in children's church right now, okay? Don't fail her. If I were to ask you, who is the greatest king that Israel ever had, who would you say? Who would you say, Joseph? King Solomon. He says King Solomon. Who would say, who do you say, Ben? King Jesus, okay. Yeah, okay. Ben just trumped us all right there, right? Let's talk about all the kings in the Old Testament. Do I, Javi, is your hand up back there, Javi? King David. How many vote with Javi? How many vote with Javi on that? Not just because he's my grandson. I think he got the right answer, right? Okay. Smart kid. Smart kid. King David, right? King David was by far, if we were Jewish, we would point back to, just like as Americans, we point back to George Washington as like the greatest. We would point back to David and say David was the greatest of all kings, right? Like it was never as good as when David was king, right? I want you to turn to a psalm this morning that David wrote, and he refers to Melchizedek. I want you to turn to Psalm 110 this morning, and I, and I want to look at Psalm 110 this morning, and I want you to see what David prophetically is writing here about Jesus, and he talks about Melchizedek in doing it, okay? Now, this is one of the most quoted psalms in all the New Testament. Jesus himself quotes it. We're going to see where Jesus quotes it. Paul quotes it. Peter quotes it. Many other of, our, of, of passages of Scripture have this, this psalm in it. And so as we look at Psalm 110, most likely this psalm is written. We don't know for sure, but most likely this psalm is written when David establishes Jerusalem as the royal city, okay? Because the royal city wasn't always in Jerusalem. David, under his rule, moved it to Jerusalem. He made Jerusalem the capital city of Israel. In doing so, David connects himself with a guy who used to sit on the throne in Jerusalem named Melchizedek, who used to be the king over Jerusalem, now, Psalm 110, let's look, we're just going to read the first four verses of it right now. The Lord says to my Lord. Now, I want you to look at your scripture there. I want you to look at your scripture. Are the two words, Lord, there, are they written the same way, church? Are they? If you have a good Bible translation, they should not be written the same way, okay? So when you see that, and, and, and remember, everybody look up here, words matter in the scriptures. Words matter. Okay? They really matter. 
So when you see Lord written out with a big capital L, but all caps after that, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, who are we referring to when we see that? Every time in the Old Testament, who are we referring to? We are referring to Jehovah, the self-existent eternal God, okay? So when you read that word, Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, we're talking about Jehovah God, the great I am, right? Okay, so David says this, God says to my Lord, capital L, but small O-R-D, okay? David's writing this as king, and he's saying, God Almighty says to someone who's over me, hmm, when you're king, do you have anybody over you? You have nobody over you, do you? And so we have to ask ourselves, who is this one that David is calling greater than himself? Who is this one that David is talking about that God says to him? Okay, let's keep reading, and I think the text is going to to give us our answer here. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand, big clue right there, big clue, okay, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord, Jehovah, sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours." The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, Bible scholars, help me out here. Who right now has been exalted and is sitting at the right hand of Almighty God in heaven? Jesus, are you sure about that? Yes, Jesus has been exalted. Okay, Philippians chapter 2 talks about this. Other passages of Scripture talk about this. David here is writing about something way off in the future, but he drops in this name Melchizedek, and that ought to catch our interest a little bit. And so what we have here is a picture of God the Father exalting his son Christ. When did that happen? I know I'm being really interactive with you, but but I want your kids to learn this as well with us. When did that happen? When did God exalt Jesus to the right hand? When did it happen? What significant event preceded Jesus being exalted to the right hand of the Father? Did Jesus come to earth and die, was buried, rose again? Then he ascended, and when he ascended, where where was he placed in heaven? Where, Where did he sit in heaven? Right hand of the Father. Right hand of the Father. Okay? Kids, I don't expect you to understand this completely, but but to sit at your father's right hand, now I don't want to see a bunch of kids going to their father's right side right now, okay? This is what's going to happen. Everybody's going to fight to be on the right side of their dad right now. But if you're on the right side of your father, especially in this culture, that was the favored place. That's the favored place. That's where, that's where usually the son the oldest son, the son with the most honor, sat, was at the father's right hand. God is placing, most of you dads don't have anybody on your right hand side. I'm a little worried. I'm looking around. None of you guys have anybody on your right hand side. Wait. Just a, oh, oh, Joe does. Yeah, he's got, he's got a couple kids there, but I notice Ben isn't right there. 
You're favoring the girls over the boys, huh? Yeah, I see how it works. If you sat at the right hand, it was the place of honor. And so God, when, when, he, when he receives Jesus back into the throne room of heaven, he puts him at his right hand. Okay? And what we have pictured here is something that's going to happen in the future until I make your enemies your footstool. And then he's going to send forth from Zion, which is Jerusalem, your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. What this is actually describing here is something that hasn't taken place yet, but will take place. And that is during the millennial rule of Jesus Christ, he will rule right here on this earth in the city of Jerusalem, and he will rule with a hand of iron over all the nations on the throne given to him by his father. But he's going to be not just a king. According to verse 4, God, Jehovah, has sworn and will not change his mind. Not only are you a king forever, but what does verse 4 say? You're a king and you're a what? You're a priest forever. Now, that is a little bit problematic for us. And here's why. Because when we're in Psalms, are we in the Old Testament or the New Testament? Old Testament. Old Testament, we have a law set up, right? And we have a priesthood already set up, right? In the, in the books of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, we have the giving of the law and the, and the actual living out of the law, right? And that law was given to Moses, right? And under Moses' law, only one family out of the 12 families of Israel, only one family could produce priests, right? What was that family, church? Anybody know? Family of Levi, okay? So out of the family of Levi, out of the tribe of Levi is where all the priests came from, right? Here's the problem. Jesus is out of whose family? He's, a, he's from Judah's family because he literally is in David's line. Don't believe me? Look at Matthew chapter 1 and look at Luke chapter 3, right? Is it Luke 3, I believe? Where the lineage of Jesus is. His roots go back to King David. And in fact, all the kings after David are from Judah. Now God is saying, wait a minute. No. I'm going to put someone on the throne who isn't a Levitical priest. It doesn't work with the Mosaic covenant. All of a sudden, what we're learning here is, is that Moses' covenant isn't forever. That law isn't forever. And what we're going to now find out is, and we're going to go to the New Testament now, to Hebrews chapter 7, God has established something called a new or better covenant. A new or better covenant here. Because it doesn't work with Moses' covenant. And that's okay. Because here's the thing. We didn't come to church this morning so that Pastor Dan and the other elders would come up and offer sacrifices for our sins this week. Aren't you glad that we don't have to have an altar in this church where we offer sacrifices? I mean, it would be a little inconvenient for you to bring your birds with you or your sheep with you every Sunday, wouldn't it? Be just highly a little inconvenient, right? When you come to the book of Hebrews, and hopefully you've found Hebrews chapter 7, one of the things we have to understand is, why was this book written even? Well, this book was written to, to basically prove one thing, that Jesus is superior, Jesus is better than all. 
That's the whole point of the book. Jesus is the best, okay? If, you're, if you were just going to write a one-sentence description for the book of Hebrews, it's this. Jesus is the best. There's no one better. There's nothing better. And chapter 7 specifically deals with the fact that Jesus is the superior priest. He's the perfect priest. That's what this deals with. He's introduced to us in chapter 4 and verse 14 as the great high priest. And in chapter 5 and verse 9, the writer of Hebrews hints and says he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then he kind of drops the subject and then picks it up again at chapter 6 and verse 20. Just one verse before chapter 7 where he says this. Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You say, why is this Melchizedek guy so important. What is so important about this guy? Because he's the only one in all of history until we come to Jesus who has occupied the role of king and priest at the same time. He's occupied the role of king and priest at the same time. And let's be honest, if you want someone to be your advocate, don't you want someone who has the authority and the power to back up and be your advocate? Do you? We just started this message with this. We all have real problems in life, right? We all have real things that we need help with. We all, we all have situations and relationship issues and, and, and our own sinfulness that, that's probably our worst problem of all, and we need someone that has some clout to back up their advocacy for us. We need someone who, whenever they speak, they're going to get results, and we have that in Jesus. I want you to see in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 7, actually just even more than that, I want you to, yeah, verses 1 through 3, I want you to see that, that Melchizedek is, is, was the supreme priest, okay? He was the supreme priest. It wasn't the priest of Aaron and Levi that were supreme priest. I want you to see that Melchizedek is even over them. Verse 1, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. We saw that in chapter 14 last week, and we saw it at the beginning of the message. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling, resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So here's why Melchizedek is the number one priest of all time, because number one, he was also a king. He was also a king. Four times in verses 1 and 2, he's mentioned as a king that's, that's connected with him. And interestingly, he's a king of righteousness who sits on the throne of peace. He's a king of righteousness and a king of peace. And what he's doing here is he is pointing to something. For those of you who like prophecy and like to see what, what happens in fulfillment of prophecy, I want you to keep your finger here and go back to the book of Zechariah. I want you to see what Zechariah the prophet prophesied in chapter 6. So in chapter 6 of Zechariah, as Zechariah is prophesying, and Zechariah's prophecy, if you've not taken the time to read it, is well worth your read. It's well worth your study. 
Zechariah chapter 6 and verse 13 He's talking about there's going to be a rebuilding of the temple and all these things that are going to happen. And in fact, let's go back to verse 12. And say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, okay, this is Jehovah, okay, Almighty One, the Lord of hosts, behold the man whose name is the branch, and in your Bible, hopefully it's a capital B branch, okay, the branch. This is another name for Jesus. He shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit on his throne, and there shall be a what on the throne? A priest. Can you imagine living in Zechariah's day and, and hearing this prophecy? And, and Because as you're listening to this, you're expecting the next words to be, and there shall be a powerful king on the throne. And no, Zechariah says this, no, there's going to be a priest on the throne. Like, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. And, 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 and then as you weave your way and you're reading through the scriptures, you finally come to the book of Hebrews, and now all of a sudden it's starting to make sense. There's going to be a priest on the throne. We're getting ready to, to get into that most wonderful time of the year, right? Christmas? And one of the prophecies about Christmas, Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, what is one of the names of Jesus? He is the prince of what? Peace. Who's going to sit on the throne as the priest. And he's going to rule with righteousness. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 14 says this, that he, Jesus, is our peace. He's our peace. And so Melchizedek is supreme to all other priests because not only is he a priest, but he's a king. Secondly, I want you to see something interesting about him in verse 3 of Hebrews 7. He is without father or mother or genealogy. Now, Melchizedek did have a father and mother. He did have a genealogy. He was not superhuman. He was not, he was not God in the flesh coming early. He's not a Christophany. Because what it says there is he resembles the Son of God at the end of verse 3. He isn't the Son of God, but he resembles the Son of God. But here's what we know or don't know about Melchizedek. We don't know anything about his father or mother. We don't know when he was born. We don't know when he died. We don't know about any of those people who came after him. We know nothing about his children. It's like all of a sudden there's no Melchizedek in history, and all of a sudden there's Melchizedek, and then there's no mention of Melchizedek anymore which foreshadows the one who is truly eternal, who doesn't have father or mother. Yes, as a human, Jesus had a father or mother, but Jesus himself was not born and came into creation on the day of his birth. He already had been the self-existent eternal God, right? So there's no father or mother. There's no genealogy. How can you genealogy and write one out for eternity? You can't. So there's no genealogy, and he resembles, he resembles Christ. What's interesting is, Levitical priests were limited to a couple things. They were limited to Levi's line, as we pointed out, but they were also limited to term limits. They could only serve for so long. Why? Because just like today, people in leadership get old and senile. Do with that what you want. People in leadership get old and senile, do they not? They lose their faculties. Will King Jesus ever lose his faculties, church? No, he's not losing his faculties. There's an eternal 
priesthood. We see it here in verse 3. He continues a priest forever. If Jesus had been named a priest under the order of Levi, guess what? He'd have been subject to those term limits. He'd have been subject to the fact you can only serve for 30 years and then you've got to step aside. Then in verses 4 through 10 of chapter 7, the writer of Hebrews offers us two proofs as to why Jesus is the superior priest. He's already demonstrated that he's the ultimate priest king because he's in the order of Melchizedek. And he's already said that Melchizedek's priesthood is superior to Levi's priesthood. But here's why Melchizedek stands out above all. Number one, look at verse four. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of his spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people that is from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descendant from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it was testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestors when Melchizedek met him. Okay, understand this. The writer of Hebrews is saying there's two reasons why Melchizedek and his priesthood are far superior than Levi's priesthood. Number one, Abraham, who was the forerunner and the, the predecessor of Levi, he can chase his generation right back to, Le, to Abraham, right? Levi can. Abraham gave tithes to this guy Melchizedek. Now, you're like, so what does that mean? Well, verse 5, it's a command in the Mosaic law that you have to tithe, right? There's no Mosaic law when Abraham does this because Moses doesn't come for a long time in history. Literally, Melchizedek took and received tithes from all of the Levitical priests himself. So if you're going to argue from logic, which priest is greater, the one who receives the tithes or the one who gives the tithes? It's the one who receives the tithes. Melchizedek is superior to Levi for that. Proof number two is in verse six and seven. But this man who does not have his descendant from the received from them received tithes from Abraham, and he blessed him who had the promises. He blessed him who had the promises. What were the promises that were given to Abram? We're going to see them really big next week in chapter 15, but we've already seen them kind of given. The promises are that you're going to be a great, you're going to be a great man, your name's going to be great. From you, there's going to come a people who can't be numbered, and all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed in you, Abraham. Well, if all the nations are going to be blessed in Abraham and someone gives Abraham a blessing, does that mean the person who gave Abraham the blessing is greater than Abraham himself? It does, doesn't it? And so that's exactly what the writer says in verse 7. And I love the way he puts it. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So you say, okay, PD, it's quarter till 12. You spent all this time talking about Melchizedek. Okay, how many agree with me that Melchizedek, let's make sure we got this, Melchizedek is better than, than Levite priests. How many agree with me on that? Okay, so I've done my job. You can leave here and know that, right? 
What does that mean? What does that mean? Because we just got some head knowledge so far, right? But, but that's got to have some meaning for us. There's got to be something that, that actually impacts my life today out of this, or we've just wasted our time, right? I'm so glad you asked, what does that mean? Well, verse 11. For if perfection, completeness, had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? Number one thing, here's the take home for us. If the Mosaic law had been perfect and had done what it needed to do, if it had totally wiped away our sins, guess what? We'd have been coming here today and we'd have been slaying animals, right? We'd have been killing animals here. There wouldn't have been a pulpit here, there'd have been an altar here, and, and, and I would be covered in blood and the other elders would be covered in blood because we'd be offering your sacrifices. But here's the thing. Even under Moses' law, how many times in a year did a priest have to go into the Holy of Holies and offer a sacrifice for the atonement for all the people? He had to do it once, but did he have to, if he did it this year, did he have to do it next year too? In the year after that? In the year after that? In the year after that? Yeah. You see, and I want you to get this. What I'm about to say is something that I'll probably tweet, okay? That's that good. The priest under Levite went into the Holy of Holies one day of year. The ultimate high priest, he lives in the Holy of Holies. He lives in the Holy of Holies. And there's a big difference there, is there not? And even himself, he had to have sacrifices offered for himself if, to go into that Holy of Holies that one day of a year, didn't he? No. The king priest Jesus, he lives in the Holy of Holies. He's right there at the right hand of God where God, where God dwells. So the law didn't bring ultimate reconciliation with God, but King Jesus brings ultimate reconciliation with God. I wish I had time to unpack this whole chapter, but I don't. Skip down with me to verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantee or the guarantor of a better covenant. A better covenant. Okay, how many of you agree with me that when God makes a covenant, it's probably a good covenant, right? It's a good covenant, right? He made a covenant with Noah that he would never destroy the earth with a flood again. How many of you agree that's a good covenant? I'm all for that, right? Right? He made a covenant with, with Israel that, okay, you're going to keep the law, and the law prescribes this, and yes, you have to offer sacrifices, and, and by doing that, if you do that in faith, you're good, right? That was the covenant that he made with them, right? Is it a perfect covenant, though? Is it, is it, is it a covenant that's going to solve all their problems? No. There's a better covenant. There's a better covenant. In fact, I want you to show you in the Old Testament where God announces this better covenant. Turn with me to the book of Jeremiah. Keep your finger here and turn with me to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31. It's a good thing we have a better covenant because one, I would be a lousy sacrificer. I would probably throw up every time. Okay? Here's what God announces in Jeremiah chapter 31. 31.31 31 is a great way to remember this passage of Scripture. 
Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when they took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, not I will just give them my law, I'm going to put my law within them and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother saying know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord for I will get this I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin for how long for no more you say well wait a minute PD that covenant was made with Israel and the house of Judah well guess what One of the things that eventually when we get to the book of Romans, we're going to all find out is that you and I, if we by faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted for him to righteousness, if you and I believe God and it's counted for us for righteousness, guess what we are considered then? The sons of who? We're the sons of Abraham. Guess what? If I'm the son of Abraham, if I'm adopted into that, and I become the son of Abraham, guess what? This covenant is for me. And if you are the child of God, this covenant is for you. Not only only do you not have to offer sacrifices anymore, God says, I will know them, and they will know me, and I will forgive their sins forever. I will remember them no more. That's a better covenant. Would you agree with me? In fact, every time we celebrate communion, we read that verse. This blood is what? Part of what? The new covenant. Part of the new covenant. So, Jesus by his death and his life has guaranteed this covenant that reconciles us to God. I don't know about you. But, but I'm, I'm beginning to wonder how many guarantees are really guarantees in this life, right? Like, I'm really beginning to wonder if the FDIC is really going to guarantee my money in the bank. That's why I don't keep any money in there. I just spend it all, right? <laughs> Not by choice. They just keep charging more for groceries these days, right? Are there really any sure guarantees in this life here? No. But there sure is a guarantee that Christ is going to keep the new covenant. And because he holds that priesthood forever, guess what? You and I have eternal security. One of the great lies is that's taught from pulpits all over our country and all over the world is, is that you have to work to keep your salvation. How many of you could work and earn your salvation? Any of you work to earn your salvation? Not one of us. No, no, the, the scripture clearly says that, that it's by grace you're saved through faith and that faith is a gift from God, right? You don't earn that, right? So if you can't work to earn your salvation, can you work to keep your salvation? Come on, use some logic with me here this morning. Can you work to keep it? If we have to work to keep our salvation, I got bad news for all of us in the room this morning. We are in a really bad jam. No. We have an eternal 
high priest. Look with me at verses 23 of Hebrews chapter 7. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, or as a result of this, verse 25, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw to God. Okay, when God says he saves to the uttermost, does he really save to the uttermost? Does that mean anything can take you out of the hand of God then? No. No. We're saved to the uttermost, and we're drawn to God through Him. Notice what it says. Those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. You say, I thought it was God who draws us. It is. It's God who draws us. But here's one of the realities of Scripture, folks. Don't ask, it, ask me to make sense for it completely your mind. God draws us, but we have to draw close too, too, don't we? It's a both and. It's a both and. You'll find both ideas in the Scripture. And what we have here is, is that we're drawing to the Father through Him. And what I see here is, without Christ helping us, without Christ drawing us Himself, we would never get to the Father. But good, good news is, He's never going to like take a nap on the job. He is an eternal high priest. So we don't have to worry about that end. But here's the thing. I began this by asking you questions about and, and probably depressing you about how hard life is. Right? Like, it's Sunday. I don't want to think about that, right? Look at the end of verse 25. What is Jesus living to do right now? What is he living to do right now for us, church? Making intercession for who? For us, for his. He's making intercession for us. I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Paul writes about this in Romans, in Romans chapter 8, and this is where I want to end this morning. Life is full of problems, real issues, things that just bring you to your knees, that take your breath away, that you're like, I can't do this. Guess what? We don't have to. We have someone far greater. We have a priest king who is intercessing for us right now. He's interceding for us. I almost made up a new word, intercessing. <laughs> Romans chapter 8, verse 31 what then can we say to those things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God's who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who, shall, who is indeed interceding for us, actively interceding right now for us. And Paul puts it this way. He is indeed, he is definitely there doing it right now. Do you know what that means for us? You know what that means? That life is full of trials, but we have the all-powerful king priest who is at God's right hand talking right into his ear and he is advocating for you and for me right now. 
So in other words, is there anything that life can bring? Is there anything that Satan can throw at us? Is there anything that's going to happen in this world that can't be remedied by King Jesus who's sitting on the throne? There's nothing. There's nothing. Which is why he writes this, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress? And he goes through this long list and he says this at the verse 38, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I don't know what your need is. I don't need to know. The good news is you don't need to go through an earthly priest like a lot of false religion in our world teaches today. You don't need to go through a man. You can go directly to the priest, Jesus, who sits right next to Almighty God. And you know will intercede for you right now. And what I'm saying to you, because he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek, who knew Melchizedek was so important? Well, we all do now, right? Because he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek who will be a priest forever, we have someone that we can go to right now. Here's the question. Do you really believe it? Because if you do, you'll go. If you believe it, you'll go, right? If you don't believe it, you won't go. If I told you there was $1,000 taped to one of these chairs, there's not. <laughs> Would you be stupid to not check your chair before you left here? You'd be even dumber not to go to the great high priest. Can I say that? Yeah, I said dumber. You're dumb if you don't go to him. Because there's no one else. There's no one else who cares. And so when we sing a song like Before the Throne of God Above, this isn't just an empty hope. These are real truths. This is our real hope. That's the only hope we have is King Jesus the priest sitting at God's right hand, right? But guess what? It's not a desperate hope. It is the hope that you and I absolutely need. It's not a desperate hope. It's a real hope. Father, what a comfort it is to know that as we call on the name of our God this morning, our Savior is sitting right now at your right hand interceding for us. The great high priest who is also the King of kings and Lord of lords is living to intercede for us right now. You know every trial that we're facing. You know everything that's got us afraid. You know everything that we're dreading about going into work tomorrow about. You, you know the bills that we have, and you know how short our bank accounts are. You know all of this. And it doesn't phase you because you are the all-powerful one. And so, Jesus, thank you for dying for us. Thank you for rising again for us. And thank you, thank you for interceding for us. We don't deserve it. But boy, we sure will take it. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, our advocate. Amen.